And that pretty much sums up the covenant. Uh, that's, what we're, that's what we're talking about today. Turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 8. And if you're uh, a guest with us this morning, again, welcome. We're really, really thankful that uh, you're spending your Sunday with us. But I just need to give you a little, little forewarning. This is a long discussion in the book of Hebrews. So uh, I, I'm, I'm making a, a lot of assumptions as, as we jump in. So I do apologize if it feels like maybe some, some dots aren't connected uh, if you're just here for the first time. But, but I, I think it'll make sense. We're really, we really are talking about the covenant that God makes with his people. Uh, he's going to be our God and, and we're going to be his people. And his promise, his faith, he's faithful to that promise. So this morning, um, we're going to talk about why we can trust him to be faithful. How do we know uh, that, that he's not going to get tired of us? How do we know he's not going to get rid of us? How do we know that he's really going to keep this covenant forever? That's, that's incredibly powerful language. And, uh, and so I want to look at Hebrews chapter 8, verses 7 to 13. You've been standing for a while. You can remain seated. And uh, let me read God's word. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for your new covenant. Thank you for that which is timeless, that will never be broken, that will apply forever. And we are so grateful to be included in that covenant. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, so, um, you know, there's language in here about the old covenant, uh, the new covenant, and, and that's really how I want to break, break this down this morning is we'll, we'll talk first about the old or the obsolete covenant. You know, you saw that, that language in verse 13. Uh, and then we're going to look at the, the new and the eternal covenant, why we can trust God's promises to be true forever. Uh, and that's, that's pretty important to us. But let's, let's first talk about the, the old or the obsolete uh, covenant. You know, on the front of your bulletins, this pile of, uh, from a, a landfill, a pile of what they now call e-waste <laughs> or electronic waste. You know, um, there, there used to be a time when you'd buy a TV and you'd keep that TV for, for years, decades sometimes. Uh, nowadays, uh, you know, when that bigger flat screen or the you know, from 4K to 8K to I don't know 20K 
you know, you're all out with the old and in with the new. And, um, and I remember in 1993, Kathy and I, I headed off to Orlando for, uh, I was going to start seminary. I, I didn't have, a, we didn't have a computer, so we bought our first personal computer. And maybe some of you remember gateway computers. They came in the boxes that looked like a cow uh, with the white box with the black spots all over it. And, uh, and that was my big behemoth desktop computer uh, and uh, wrote, wrote a bunch of papers on that thing. And it's somewhere in a landfill somewhere. I don't know um, where it is, but maybe it's one of those. Maybe your old, old computer, your old desktop is in that landfill. But this is a thing. Um, this is a problem. The, uh, the World Economic Forum two years ago uh, said that electronic waste is the fastest growing waste stream in the world. Uh, and that the rapid changes in technology, uh, changes in media, uh, falling prices, and planned obsolescence have resulted in a fast-growing surplus of electronic waste around the globe. And, and this is not accidental. Like, some of the obsolescence is intentional. They plan on it. Uh, Apple uh, was sued. I, don't, I can't remember how many years ago it was, but um, they, they want to get you to buy a new phone, right? So. So what they did was the software uh, upgrade that you would download, uh, one, of them, one of them they, they, they stuck some code in that would throttle your battery life. And uh, there was a lawsuit in France, I think a class action suit against Apple, and, and they won. Um, so Apple had to pay this incredible fine, millions and millions of dollars that, by the way, they make in about four hours uh, a day. <laughs> uh, wasn't that big of a fine after all. But yeah, uh, because they discovered they, they were doing it on purpose because uh, people would go, oh, my, the battery on my old phone's not, 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 not working as well, so I guess I needed a new phone. Um, okay, so, so some of it, you know, yeah, they want to just increase their sales. They want you to buy the latest and the greatest, but it's not all bad. You know, you get a new phone and you get new bells and you get new whistles and you get 5G instead of 4G and you get a better camera instead of that crappy camera. And, you know, so it's, it kind of works out. But um, there's a lot of waste, uh, and you kind of go, well, when does it stop? When, when, does, the, when does the planned obsolescence kind of stop? Uh, you, you look at verse 13 here in our passage, and there's this talk of, of an obsolete covenant, um, that the new covenant makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. And... The language of the covenants is obviously it's you know, very religious language, um, and if you're new to the church or new to the Bible, we'll, we'll, I'm going to try to catch you up to what what is a covenant. But sit tight. Um, we can start with the Old Testament, and all the way back in Genesis chapter three, where the covenant of grace began, and this covenant with with Adam, this you know, a book by a guy named O. Palmer Robertson called The Christ of the Covenants outlines this progression of how the old covenant kind of expanded and, and, and you know, had new aspects added on to it. Beginning with Adam, you've got what he called and other theologians referred to as the covenant of commencement. And then you get Noah, he comes along and there's another covenant, the covenant of preservation. Abraham's Next, sort of on the scene, he's, he, he receives the covenant of promise. 
And then there's Moses. There's the covenant that has the law, the Ten Commandments attached to it. And then David, um, you know, King David and the, the covenant of the kingdom. And each new covenant expanded on the old. It didn't replace the old. It, it, it really improved on, on the old so that they can all collectively be called uh, the old covenant. It, it's, it's still the same covenant of grace, but with these revisions to it, uh, these, these new uh, additions. So, um, you know, back in the day, I guess it was, um, this is my old iPhone 6. I think I, I got this, I don't know, what, that would have been 2014, 2015. And here's, here's my, my newer, uh, not new anymore, but I think this is an iPhone 12 Plus or whatever. But, uh, you know, much faster, better camera, all, that, all, all the bells and whistles, like I said. But they're both still iPhones. I mean, it's, they're the same thing, just this one's better than, than this one. And I want you to think of the progression of the Old Covenant in the Old Testament in that same light of they're, they're not radically different. They're, they're expansions of what is the, the same fundamentally, which is God coming to his people, saying, I'm going to be your God, and you're going to be my people. And I'm going to be faithful to you, and I want you to be faithful to me. That's the covenant. And it would come with signs. Typically, you know, there's some kind of symbol, some kind of ceremony, something to validate it. Uh, you think of today, covenant, you know, uh, human covenant being the most popular one probably is a wedding covenant where a man and a woman get married and they exchange rings and that ring becomes a sign of the promise that, that each one makes to one another. Promise to be faithful, promise to love one another and be there for one another. So, so yeah, each of the, the covenants in the Old Testament are like upgrades, you know, 1.0, 2.0, you know, and, and if you want to think of it as you know, your, your, your speed, uh, instead of 5G, you know, when you get to King David, you, it's, it's, it's 5C. I, I don't know. And he's, he's the best. It's, it's, it's got a lot of power, a lot of speed, and, and so on. But there's this point of failure. There's an inevitable point of failure with all of those successive expressions of the covenant of grace. There, there always needed to be another. Because what was previous wasn't enough. Um, when you turn to Genesis 17 and, and you read about the covenant that God makes with, with Abraham, God says that I'm going to establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And God gives the, the sign of circumcision at that time. But that covenant did not endure in, 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 with Abraham. Right? There needed to be an, a new one uh, after that with Moses, and then after Moses with David. And, and then in Jeremiah, we're told about a brand new covenant, and that's the one that's mentioned here in Hebrews 8. Hebrews 8, our passage this morning, is basically an extended quotation of Jeremiah 31, the announcement of a new covenant, because the old covenant had this inevitable point of failure. And the problem wasn't with the covenant itself. Look at verses 7 and 8 here in, in Hebrews 8. It says if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. But he finds fault with what? With the covenant? No. He finds fault with them, with, with the recipients of the covenant. 
When he says, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers, for they did not continue in my covenant. So it's, it's the recipients of the covenant that were the point of failure. Not, not God, not the terms, but the people. And I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. So what's remarkable about all of the Old Testament uh, upgrades is not just you know, God's commitment to improve and expand upon his promise. He kept renewing the covenant despite the fact that the recipients would continue to break the covenant. God would be faithful and the people would be unfaithful. God would be faithful and the people would run after false gods. God would be faithful and the people would curse God. God would be faithful and the people would abandon God. And you know, again and again and again, you, you, saw, you saw this pattern. So, um, you know, Hebrews 8, as I mentioned, is quoting Jeremiah 31. And so I'll just, you know, re read that to you. It's very, very similar to the language in, in Hebrews 8. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. One of the most uh, prevalent images in, in the Bible between God and his people is that of a marriage. Uh, do you remember last week we were talking about how things on earth are a shadow of their heavenly reality, you know, and, and the argument in the first half of Hebrews 8 is that the earthly uh, tabernacle or temple, the place of worship, this point of contact between heaven and earth, the earthly one is a shadow of the real temple, the, the real tabernacle in heaven. Um, and that we can say the same thing about marriage, that our earthly marriages are a shadow, a copy of the real marriage between uh, God and his people. So, you know, what the church is, is it's called the bride of Christ. And we who are invited into this marriage relationship with our our heavenly groom are blessed. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And so the gospel becomes this story of eternal intimacy and eternal security that God's people enjoy because we are the objects of his affection. We are his beloved, and, and he is our, our heavenly husband, right? So that's the real marriage. And our earthly marriages, at their best, are, are helping our neighbors see this is what God's faithfulness looks like. This is what God's love looks like. This is what the, the security and the intimacy of, of a marriage relationship in heaven looks like uh, as, as God makes covenant with us. And yet, how, um, you know, how, how tragic is it <laughs> That consistently, you know, through the Old Testament, you see a picture of God's people being unfaithful to, to God, and, and sin is described in, those, in, in that language of like spiritual adultery. Uh, and, and that's why we, we see that sin isn't a small thing, it's, a, it's an immense thing. It's as, it's as disruptive to our relationship with God as an affair is to an earthly marriage. That's the biblical definition, or not definition, but description of sin. One of the ways to describe sin is spiritual adultery. Um, and you can read about that 
and the prophets. And so this sends as a new dimension uh, to, to this renewal of covenant. So it's no longer just, hey, uh, we get an upgrade from a six to a, a 12 plus or whatever, just because there's new bells and new whistles. But, but you know, what happens when, when you and I drop one of these in the toilet? <laughs> uh, what happens when you and I, you know, leave and, and, and lose one of these at the concert? Or what happens when, you know, you and I drop uh, one and, and it shatters on the concrete? have to go out and buy a new one. When we break one of these, we need a new one. And God in his mercy, when we break the covenant with him, when his people have broken covenant with him, at a, at an, you know, it's not cheap to replace these, right? At great cost to him, he makes a new covenant with us. He renews his affection to us. He pursues us and and, and loves us consistently and constantly. And, and this finds its fullest expression in the new eternal covenant, okay? This is, this is the, uh, the point of quoting Jeremiah 31. Um, and, you know, basically I'll just read you verses, uh, verse 33 from Jeremiah 31. It's the same as in Hebrews uh, 8, verse, uh, verse 10. So, this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. So God made that promise to his people back in the old covenant, and that's fulfilled in the new covenant as this one, that, that the next version that, that's coming out, right? That God would be faithful to us. He will be our God, and we will be his people. It's the radical promise, the beautiful promise of the new covenant. And I just want to ask us this morning, is it true? Is that true? Is, is, is God's promise to be our God and to be our people, is that factual? Is, is that something we can rely on? I mean, because what about the times when it looks like our, our, our circumstances and, and, and our hearts feel like, um, like God's just gone. Like he's fed up with us. He's had enough of us, maybe through our own foolishness or just, you know, I don't know, maybe you feel like you've been towing the line. But still, nonetheless, instead of wins, you keep kind of getting loss after loss after loss. And what about the times when everything is hard and everything is painful and nothing Nothing's going right, right? Don't you kind of wonder, God, where are you? Don't you hear these promises like, I'm going to be your God, you're going to be my people, and you're going to go, really? I don't know what you brought with you into this room this morning. I mean, you're here. That's great. But you don't have to come in here every single Sunday with the mask on that, that hey, everything's great and, I'm, and, and God's wonderful and I'm, I'm his and so on. The, the reality is that the Bible invites us to come in here with open and honest hearts, uh, with even our hard and painful questions. And if you're asking questions like this, like, has God forgotten about me? Is he fed up with me? Is he, you know, um, he, he, this covenant really can't be true, can it? Because of how hard and painful your life is. 
I just want to validate that and tell you that you're not alone in those questions. You're, you're actually very biblical to be asking some of those questions. And, and I, want you to, I want you to listen to Psalm 77 because of just the, the onslaught of hard questions, accurate, true questions, true expressions of our heart. But um, you kind of wonder, does this even belong in the Bible? Where Psalm 77, beginning in verse 7, says, Will the Lord reject forever? Will he never show his favor again? Has his unfailing love vanished forever? Has his promise failed for all time? Has God forgotten to be merciful? Has he in anger withheld his compassion? If any or all of those questions ring true for you, have a, a disturbing sort of sense of, you know, being, being familiar to you, I, I hope in one sense you're comforted to know that the Bible gives you an honest avenue for what's going on in your heart. You don't have to pretend. And as much as it's helpful to know that the Bible wants to encourage us to, to bring our whole heart before the, the Lord, uh, don't just go to the Bible for validation of all the hard things that you're feeling. If we're going to do that, then we also need to go to the Bible with, with the direction that Scripture sends us with all of that pain. Because the pivot is right here. The next verse says, Then I thought, to this I will appeal the years when the Most High stretched out his right hand, and I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your miracles of long ago. I will consider all your works and meditate on all your mighty deeds. And so that's what God's people used to do, right? They'd be in a bind, they'd be in a hole, they'd be in the shadows, and, um, and, and they would call to mind, they would remember God's mighty deeds when he would stretch out his powerful right hand and send the plagues on Pharaoh or split the Red Sea so that God's people could be delivered or you know, send a shepherd boy to go rout Goliath or you know, send you know, this or that or the other to, to deliver his people through some miracle, some demonstration of, of sovereign power. But that's great. The old covenants, you know, how God would show up and he would stretch out his, his powerful right hand and deliver his people. But that was then, right? Save, save, save my grandparents, but he sure seems to have forgotten about me. I mean, I, that, I, think, I think somebody might ask that question, which is why we need the new covenant. We need a covenant that applies to us today, every day, and, and tomorrow, and into eternity. And this is the, the covenant that Jesus provides for us. God sent Jesus to deliver us, similar to, like, think about Moses delivering his people from slavery and from oppression in Egypt. That's what sin does to us. It, it, it enslaves us. It oppresses us. It makes life miserable. And we're going to die under sin, right? Just like Israel was going to die under Egypt. And God delivers us through Jesus, the new Moses. And God delivers us through 
his death, uh, his sacrifice. Now, you know, this is a little bit different from Psalm 77, which was, you know, hey, let's call to mind, let's remember when God stretched out his mighty right hand, yet Jesus saves us a little bit differently. Because Jesus stretches out his hands in weakness and in vulnerability to save us. Not in this demonstration of power and strength that routes his enemies, but actually in this demonstration of surrender and sacrifice. Where his enemies seem to win. Um, he dies the death that we should have died due to sin, and then, but then he's raised to life so that we who are united to him by faith can participate in the resurrection, in the new heaven, the new earth that he is going to bring. Now, I don't want you to get the wrong impression either that somehow um, the cross is different from the other ways that God would deliver his people, that he used to deliver them through strength and now he's delivering them through weakness as if God is glorifying weakness instead of strength. No, it's not exactly that. It's incredible strength demonstrated through incredible vulnerability. So let me ask you this, which is harder which requires more strength? To wield your power in order to rout your enemies or to restrain your power in order to save your enemies? Which is more difficult? To, when someone's attacking you, which is harder? To fight back in anger or to serve them in love? We know which one requires more strength. It required incredible strength, incredible power in order for Jesus to stretch out his right hand and his left hand and to pray, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. He conquered sin and, and death and Satan in that simultaneous act of power and weakness. And he saves us through that simultaneous power and vulnerability. That's how he makes us new. By faith in him, through his resurrection, we are saved in real time because he lives right now. He's not a historical figure. He's not Moses or he's not Noah, you know, some saint that we would look at from long ago. And remember when God did that? Yeah. No, he's still doing that. He's still applying the power of the gospel so that every time somebody believes in him, that power makes that person today a new creation, raises them from spiritual death today, and he can do that for any of you who don't trust him yet. And if you do know him, he's doing, that power is at work in you. That power is at work in me today. So that, yeah, it's true for our fathers and our mothers in the faith, but it's true for us today too. So now when the questions come, like, Will God be faithful to his covenant? Um, you know, from Psalm 77. Will the Lord reject forever? Will he ever show his favor again, right? Has his promise failed for all time? Has God forgotten to be merciful? We can make the same pivot from Psalm 77, but it's a little bit different. We, it goes like this. Then I thought, to this I will appeal. The moment when Jesus stretched out his right hand and his left. I will remember the death and resurrection of the Lord. Yes, I will remember the gospel. 
The gospel that tells us, that Hebrews 8 tells us, that Jeremiah 31 tells us, I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. And because of this gospel, because of this new covenant, the promise of God is upon us. Uh, and this is why Peter would say things like, in 2 Peter 3, uh, according to God's promise, we're waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. When we're not going to you know, wonder, has God forgotten his covenant or his promises? No, that day is, is going to end. And therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. His promise of a new heaven and earth is coming. But it's possible, right? Like, we might raise the question, how do we know? How do we know that promise is going to come to pass? How do we know there's not a, another need for a revision? How do we know that this current phase, this current you know, um, uh, version of the covenant, how do we know we're not going to need another one? That's a valid question, right? How do we know the promise of a new heaven, a new earth will even endure? Well, the reason why we know that this covenant will not be broken is because the terms are different. God didn't make the new covenant between, you know, it's not a covenant between God and his people. It's between God and our representative. The first covenant between God and Adam failed because Adam was the point of failure. The new covenant will not fail because the new Adam is our new representative. And Jesus, is, who's fully human, is also fully God, and he's sinless, and he won't fail. He did not fail, and that is why we can be confident that this new covenant is not going to require an upgrade. It's not going to be broken because Jesus fulfilled it on our behalf. He's our new Adam. Um, you know, there's this uh, article that was written in 1983 um, about the promises, and uh, the, the fellow who wrote it was a guy named Lewis Smeeds, and he writes that when we make and keep promises, we are most of all like the God whose name is I am he who will be there with you. I, I am the one who's going to keep covenant with you. And among all the dimensions of the mature person in Christ, none comes closer to the character of our Lord than the daring to make a promise and the courage to keep the promises that we make. He's saying that's when we're most like God, right? Um, and then later on in the article, you can almost sort of see him going, well, maybe I overstated that a bit, because then he says, can any human act other than the act of forgiving <laughs> be more divine? making promises, forgiving. Those are all ways that we show the world what God is like. Keeping these promises, showing our faithfulness. Um, this, all, this article, by the way, I came across because I was watching this interview, and I think probably some of you have seen it, between, it was on the Gospel Coalition, and it was a while back. It was an interview between Tim Keller and John Piper and D.A. Carson, and they were all talking about marriage. Uh, and, and Tim Keller shares about, you know, reading this article when he was a young pastor, and he, he, he pastored in Hopewell, Virginia, by the way, before he went to Philadelphia and then uh, Redeemer in New York. When he was in Hopewell, Virginia, 
He reads this article by Lewis Smedes about the power of a promise. And he realized, oh my goodness, that's what's going on. Like, like in the article, <laughs> uh, later on in the article, as, it's, as he's talking about the power of a promise, he says how that applies, Lewis Smedes was talking about how that applied to his marriage. He says, you know, we have this, this thinking that we, we, we were looking for Mr. Right or Mrs. Right when, when people are looking, to, looking for a spouse, and they're, they're like, i got to find the right person. He says, give up on that. You're, you're never going to marry the right person. In fact, Smeads says, my wife has lived with at least five different men since we were wed, and each of the five has been me, right? Because we don't, we're not static. We, we change, we grow, and... and you know, and so that's, Keller picks up on that. And he says, you know, that's the role of the promise. So when you say yes, you, you say yes to, to all the different kinds of, of versions of your spouse as they grow in Christ and as they change their preferences and likes fade and new likes um, encroach. And so that promise is the anchor for the, the marriage. And Keller says about his own marriage to Kathy, he said, I made a promise to her. I made an appointment with her in the future to be her husband every year, and it's a covenant. It's a demonstration of faithfulness, just like God has made that promise to us. So think about you know, that parallel between our earthly marriage and the real marriage in heaven. God's covenant, his promise to be our God, his appointment to be our God next year and the year after that and into eternity. That's God's covenant, an appointment with us, with his bride. An appointment with us, no matter what version of us, you know, is, is going to exist in the future. Most of us, when you start off in your relationship uh, with, with Christ, you, you, you become a Christian, you're a new disciple, and you're excited, you're devoted but you're kind of clueless, right? But there's all kinds of affection and you know, enthusiasm. It's great. And then other things happen, you know, you, you kind of, life goes on, and, and I don't know, maybe you kind of move into a, a less enthusiastic mode of your discipleship, but you're pretty dutiful, right? You're kind of showing up, and you're serving, and you're checking the boxes, but, but sometimes you feel kind of distant from God. And then there's the version of you that, you know, kind of, kind of, goes off into the weeds and, and you crash through the guardrail and, and you know, maybe you, you fall into a pattern or habit of sin and, and, it's, and it's hard and there's a struggle and the Holy Spirit's convicting you. And, you know, and, and yet that, that wandering period, why are we wandering? Well, a lot of times because we're wounded. And then maybe you come back onto the path and, and you're, you're purposeful now. You're, you're determined. I'm, gonna, uh, I'm, I'm repenting and I'm, I'm back and Boy, I, I sure am glad that I got that figured out. And um, too bad for those terrible people that don't, don't repent and don't come back. You know? And, and you, yeah, you're purposeful, but you're kind of proud. And then maybe you sort of settle into a path of just being faithful. Right? And but, but, it's, but it's fits and starts. Uh, it's not consistent. And God, God is faithful to every single version of us. And he's not going to break that covenant because it's not made with us. It's made with Jesus. But we're united to Jesus by faith. And so you hold on to him, and you love him, and you serve him. And when you fall off the wagon, you get back on, and you repent, and you, and you keep following him. 
That's the beauty of this covenant. It's not going to be broken because of our bad behavior. It's not going to be broken because of his good behavior. And that's where we put our faith. His covenant is his promise. It's his appointment with us in the future to be our God and that we will be his people, not because of our works, but because of Jesus. This is why when we hear God's promise of a new heaven and new earth, we don't have to wonder, is there going to be some, you know, revision? Is there going to be some upgrade? Am I going to miss out? No. Revelation 21 says that I, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place, the, the tent, the tabernacle of God is with man and he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. That promise will never be broken. So let me pray for us. Lord, we give you thanks for your promises to your people, to your church, that you are a faithful God. And we give you thanks for Jesus, our representative who is faithful on our behalf so that this covenant would never be broken. Lord, would you help us to hold on to Jesus? Help us to trust in him. Help us to look to him. Help us to remember the gospel of when he stretched out his right hand and his left hand in weakness, in vulnerability, but also in incredible power and incredible strength so that we might not be lost so that we might be united to him, to have our sins forgiven and to be given new life, to be given a part in the new heaven and the new earth, to be recipients of a new covenant. Lord, help us to hold on to him. Help us to believe in him and trust in him. If there are any here who are just making sense of this right now, help them to rejoice that Jesus is the way that we can know your promises are true and applied to us. Lord, make tabernacle. Uh, continue to make tabernacle the place where we believe your promises, where we trust your promises, where, where your promises to love us enable us to love others, where your promises to be faithful to us enable us to be faithful uh, in our marriages, in our friendships, in our work, in, our, uh, in, in everything that we do, because we, we wear your name, and we are how people see whether or not you're real. Lord, give us the, the grace to to wear that name well. And thank you for the grace where we fail. Uh, Lord, would you bless um, our, our entire church, but we also pray in particular for several of our households.